This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, an open access online community of healthcare professionals sharing best practices from around the world. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Laryngeal cleft. A laryngeal cleft, or laryngotracheal cleft, is a rare congenital anomaly in which a patient has an incomplete separation between the larynx and esophagus, which can lead to aspiration. The incidence is between 1 in 10,000 to 1 in 20,000 live births. Early diagnosis and proper repair of a laryngeal cleft are important to prevent pulmonary injury and associated morbidity. This video will discuss the anatomy and pathophysiology, clinical presentation, diagnosis, preoperative evaluation, and focus primarily on the most common type of laryngeal clefts, type 1 and 2, for the discussion of anesthetic management, operative approach, postoperative care, and complications and follow-up. Anatomy and Pathophysiology The larynx is the gatekeeper between the pharynx and trachea. While known for its ability to produce vocalization, its primary evolutionary function is to prevent swallowed contents from entering the airway. The elements superior to the vocal folds are known as the supraglottis, while the elements deep to the vocal folds are known as the subglottis. Below the larynx, the trachea extends from the cervical to thoracic vertebral levels. During development, the airway and esophagus form from a common tube called the foregut, separating early in embryologic development with the formation of the tracheoesophageal septum. A laryngotracheal cleft is thought to occur when the septum does not completely develop, resulting in a lack of separation between the laryngotracheal axis and the esophagus. The Felipe Monnier classification system is commonly used to divide laryngeal clefts into four classes based on the extent of the defect. Type 1 clefts extend to the level of the vocal cords. Type 2 clefts extend below the vocal cords into the cricoid cartilage. Type 3 clefts are subdivided into a type 3A cleft, which extends through the entire cricoid cartilage, and a type 3B cleft which extends through the cricoid cartilage into the extrathoracic cervical trachea. Type 4 clefts are subdivided into a type 4A cleft, which extends to the carina, and a type 4B cleft, which extends into one main stem bronchi. Clinical presentation. Patients most often present with respiratory symptoms, including difficult feeding and cough associated with drinking thin liquids, strider after feeding, chronic cough, wheezing, and recurrent respiratory infections. The severity of symptoms is highly variable depending on the subtype. Patients with type 1 and type 2 clefts may experience minimal disease manifestations such as choking with feeds, wheezing, chronic cough, or recurrent lower respiratory tract infections. These patients typically do not experience considerable symptoms until at least several months old, and are often diagnosed at 12 to 18 months of age. In contrast, patients with type 3 and 4 clefts usually present in the first few days of life with significant respiratory symptoms. It is important to have a high index of suspicion to diagnose a laryngeal cleft. The differential for these respiratory and feeding symptoms includes laryngomalacia, gastroesophageal reflux disease, 
neuromuscular disorders affecting swallow function, and reactive airway disease. Laryngeal clefts can also present as part of a genetic syndrome or association. The syndromes associated with laryngeal clefts include Opitz-Fries syndrome, Pallister-Hall syndrome, factorial association, and charge syndrome. Children with type 3 or 4 clefts or other congenital anomalies should be considered for genetic evaluation. Laryngeal clefts often co-occur with laryngomalacia, tracheobronchomalacia, and GERD, as well as other congenital defects such as GI, GU, and cardiac malformations. Diagnosis The cornerstone of diagnosing laryngeal clefts is direct laryngoscopy under general anesthesia. Diagnosis of type 1 laryngeal clefts is rarely feasible via indirect methods of visualization, as it requires careful probing of the larynx under anesthesia. A laryngoscope is passed through the patient's mouth and is used to expose the larynx, using microscopic visualization to guide palpation of the interarytenoid region. Direct laryngoscopy and bronchoscopy also allows for further evaluation of the airways and can allow for diagnosis of other airway abnormalities such as tracheobronchomalacia or tracheoesophageal fistula, both of which can co-occur with laryngeal clefts. Additional swallow studies and chest imaging may be helpful in the diagnostic workup. Chest x-rays and CT scans may show peribronchial cuffing or pulmonary infiltrates from recurrent aspiration. A modified barium swallow assesses for aspiration in real time. As patients attempt to swallow barium mixtures of varying consistencies, you may see aspiration of barium into the lungs. An alternative procedure that avoids radiation exposure is functional endoscopic evaluation of swallowing, during which dyed liquids of varying thickness are administered to the patient and visualized with a transnasal fiber-optic scope as patients attempt to swallow. Preoperative Evaluation A diagnosis of a type 1 laryngeal cleft alone is not, in and of itself, an indication for surgical repair. A patient with a type 1 cleft should first be assessed for aspiration and should undergo feeding therapy and management of pulmonary and gastrointestinal comorbid conditions such as reactive airway disease and or gastroesophageal reflux disease where indicated. A mildly symptomatic patient with a type 1 cleft may benefit from a trial of medical management, including anti-reflux treatment, in addition to thickened feeds which can be useful in preventing aspiration. The patient may not require surgery if swallowing and pulmonary function improve. A patient with a more symptomatic type 1 cleft or a type 2, 3, or 4 cleft will require surgery, but first should be medically optimized. It is important to establish an adequate nutrition plan, which can range from a modified diet with thickened foods to enteral tube feeding. Pulmonary care is important, and for patients with respiratory symptoms can include inhaled bronchodilators, inhaled corticosteroids, physiotherapy, and courses of antibiotics for pneumonia. At our institution, in the Center for Airway Disorder, patients can see an otolaryngologist, pulmonologist, gastroenterologist, 
and feeding therapist in one visit, teams should consider referring patients to these clinics for preoperative and postoperative care. If surgical intervention is decided, a detailed preoperative assessment, including evaluation for other comorbidities, should be performed by the anesthesia team. Special attention should be given to complete evaluation of the airway. Children with significant airway abnormalities should be considered at high risk for difficult airway management and potential complications. Those with signs of significant airway obstruction, including respiratory distress, strider, and inability to lie flat, and increased oxygen requirement should be assumed to have a narrowed or anatomically abnormal airway and to be a potentially challenging intubation. The anesthetic plan should be discussed in detail during preoperative planning with the surgical team. Close communication and coordination between the surgical, anesthesia, and nursing teams is very important in maintaining patient safety. Advanced airway equipment should be immediately available, including video laryngoscopes and flexible and rigid bronchoscopes. Anesthetic management. During type 1 and type 2 laryngeal cleft repair, both the otolaryngologist and the anesthesiologist need to have adequate access to the patient's airway to ensure a safe surgery and anesthetic. For this reason, appropriate patient positioning in the OR is crucial. For most surgeries, the patient will be oriented so that the anesthesiologist and ventilator are at the patient's head and the surgeons are at their side. For a laryngeal cleft repair, the patient is turned 90 degrees from this typical positioning, with the otolaryngologist at the patient's head and the anesthesiologist and ventilator at the side. The goal in the patient's anesthetic care during endoscopic repair is to achieve spontaneous ventilation without an endotracheal tube. This allows unimpeded access to the posterior larynx for instrumentation and reduces mechanical stress on the repair. Spontaneous ventilation without an endotracheal tube can be achieved by inhalation induction with sevoflurane and oxygen, followed by administration of intravenous agents such as propofol and remifentanil to maintain the ideal plane of anesthesia. In some cases, nitrous oxide may be used during induction of anesthesia, while airway topical anesthesia is used to assist with patient analgesia, it has transmucosal absorption kinetics that are similar to IV lidocaine, contributing to the depth of anesthetic required for suspension, and should be considered when deciding dosages. Monitoring end-tidal CO2 during the procedure is one of the primary ways to ensure adequate ventilation during surgery and is particularly important with a shared airway and a patient who is spontaneously ventilated. Other options include a precordial stethoscope or transcutaneous CO2 monitoring, which is rarely used. Although spontaneous ventilation without an endotracheal tube using a total intravenous anesthesia TIVA, technique is a well-described anesthetic technique for laryngeal surgery, there are unique considerations during laryngeal cleft repair. Unlike many laryngeal procedures that are brief in duration, laryngeal suspension for a laryngeal cleft repair can be prolonged up to two hours. Throughout the procedure, patients must have sufficient depth of anesthesia while still continuing to breathe spontaneously. Adequate depth is especially important prior to and during suspension laryngoscopy, or movement might occur with application, resulting in tracheal damage. 
treating insufficient depth of anesthesia with bolus administration of hypnotic agents such as propofol is challenging due to the risk of apnea and inability to mask ventilate the patient while in suspension. Intraoperative apnea while in suspension requires ventilation to be controlled by alternative methods, including intermittent oxygenation until spontaneous ventilation has returned. It is essential that an appropriate depth of anesthesia be established prior to suspension laryngoscopy. Once the patient is placed in suspension and a steady state of anesthesia is achieved, the dose of intravenous agents should not be titrated up or down due to the risk of movement or apnea respectively until the conclusion of the procedure and airway suspension is released. Operative Approach Endoscopic repair is the gold standard for type 1 and type 2 clefts. Some type 3 clefts are able to be repaired endoscopically as well. After induction of anesthesia, the otolaryngologist exposes the posterior larynx with the laryngoscope and then suspends the laryngoscope such that it no longer needs to be manually held, freeing the surgeon's hands for the repair. Topical application of 4% lidocaine to the surgical site is applied to assist with patient analgesia. Once the larynx is appropriately visualized and treated with lidocaine, the mucosal margins of the cleft are denuded, typically with a carbon dioxide laser. Endoscopic instruments are used to suture the full depth of the cleft. Generally, two to four absorbable interrupted sutures are placed. Of note, fire safety precautions must be taken if the CO2 laser is to be used. Postoperative care. After endoscopic repair, patients usually spend their first postoperative night monitored closely and receive additional doses of intravenous glucocorticoid to mitigate upper airway edema. They are monitored closely for strider or respiratory distress. Patients usually spend one to two nights in the hospital. Their preoperative diet can be slowly resumed with ongoing assessment for symptoms of aspiration. They are often treated with antibiotics for the duration of their hospitalization and are sent home to complete their course. Complications and follow-up. The most common problems after surgical repair are ongoing aspiration and breakdown at the surgical site with recurrence of symptoms. If patients continue to experience symptoms and show continued aspiration on swallow studies, persistence of a residual or recurrent laryngeocleft should be ruled out. Revision surgery may be required. Patients who have undergone open repair of larger clefts not uncommonly return to the operating room for a second stage endoscopic repair of a residual type 1 or a type 2 cleft. The risk of dehiscence at the repair site is theoretically increased by gastroesophageal reflux, coughing, presence of an endotracheal or nasogastric tube, and laryngeal movement. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. We have more podcasts like this one available everywhere you get your podcasts. Visit openpediatrics.org for more information.